from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. The African American community spends about a trillion dollars a year. I mean, it's like we individually we're poor, but together we got a lot of money. There is a, there are opportunities to increase market share. I think you get a better company, a stronger company. You get a, a better mix of products and services, but you also get more political cover. Fan Jones is a well-known author, activist, and CNN commentator. He spoke with Tom Steyer, a hedge fund manager, philanthropist, environmentalist, and progressive activist, and me at the Verge 15 conference in San Jose, California. We discussed the business opportunities for technology companies that meet the needs of consumers at all economic levels, and the role for companies in addressing income equality. Let's listen in. So as we started off this conference, we talked about how much uh, Verge is, not just a con- about the convergence of technologies, it's kind of, it's kind of a given these days, but it's also the convergence of interests, convergence of, uh, of people and, and institutions, but also how we've kind of moved this community from, from a movement to a market. And so I think it's really appropriate we close out the morning with the two of you who are, the, each of you is a visionary uh, uh, who has been uh, bringing this incredible voice to the world of clean technology, uh, to environmental justice, uh, economic uh, equity, and so many other issues. And now there's this convergence taking place here. So let's just sort of level set to start off. Um, you know, how are you guys working together, uh, and, and what's the convergence look like? Tom, let's start with you. Well, um, this isn't really new, the idea that different issues are uh, interrelated. So I would go back to 2010 when we were doing No on 23. And so if you guys remember, that was a referendum through a proposition on whether we should keep our, the progressive... Californian energy laws. And I co-chaired it with George Schultz. There was no one else who really wanted to take that job, so it wasn't a big competition. (laughs) Because all the previous propositions that had pitted jobs against the environment, lo and behold, jobs killed the environment. And so we said in 2010, a couple of things. One is, the only way to talk about energy environment and climate is about local human issues. So if you're not talking about job creation, if you're not talking about relative costs, if you're not talking about health impacts, then you're not speaking to the people of California. And in addition, when you think about the 39 million Californians, who your image of who really cares about these issues has got to be based on the facts on the ground. And the fact of the matter is that Latinos care more about energy, climate, and the environment than anybody else in the state of California. That's right. And it goes Latinos, Asian Americans, African Americans. That's the first three groups. The other thing that's true is when you talk on any of these topics, you have to have credible messengers for jobs, which means business people. It means business people and organized labor. When you talk about health, you need the American Lung Association. And when you have a coalition, it means a real coalition from the beginning. So when we talk about energy and climate, we are always talking about jobs. 
job creation, what kind of jobs, who's going to get them. We're talking about costs for working people, and we're talking about health. So from our point of view, we view energy and climate. Obviously, there's some, something we're trying to prevent. But even more than that, we view that as a huge opportunity for California and a huge opportunity for the United States to address our inequity issues, to address our health issues, and to really create the kind of society we want. Now, Dan, we, I first met you well over a dozen years ago, and you were talking about jobs, green jobs, not jail. So this has been an area you've been <clears throat> talking about for a long time. How has that changed over the past few years, and how does that uh, come into the world that Tom is playing in? Well, I mean, first of all, it's just good to be here. And I see a lot of, a lot of friends, and, uh, you know, it's been a long journey to get to this point. It's now inarguable what Tom is saying. Before, we had a fear. Our fear was that the green economy would start moving in a particular direction, that it would be a kind of an eco-elite that would benefit, and then we would have a backlash coalition of polluters and poor people saying, no, you guys don't get all the solar panels and the solar brakes and the hybrid cars and the organic food and we get asthma, cancer clusters in the bill, and that we would be unable to overcome this backlash alliance between polluters and poor people. That backlash alliance now exists, and where it exists, unless you're doing it the way Tom says, it wins. We just saw in Arizona this exact play run where polluters got up and said the solar companies are going to put up solar panels on rich folks' houses, poor people are going to be stuck, rich people are going to get, not, not that you're... Uh, you keep pointing not, at me when you say rich people. I'm just, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, watch it, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Let me yeah. get my fingers pointed the right way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll point it in that direction yeah. in general. But, but that was the argument, was that the rich folks are going to be paying zero for their energy bills. Poor folks are going to be paying through the roof because now you've got fewer people paying for those services. They won. So in Arizona, you actually have costs going up for solar and the installations coming down. Difference between Arizona, California, the approach laid out here. In California, you had at the table, from the beginning, African-Americans, labor, Latinos, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, business, health. And we said, how can we have climate rules that give more work, more wealth, and better health to everyone? They designed, in California, a cap-and-trade system that takes a quarter out of every dollar and takes it from polluters and invests it in poor communities. What does that mean? Practically, it means bus passes for people who need them, more mass transit. Practically, it means reduced solar panels, some free solar panels. Practically, it means uh, 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 urban forestry, organic. But politically, it means an unbeatable coalition. You cannot now roll back climate policy in California because too many people were at the table designing it and too many people benefit. And so you can just literally, and the same thing happened just now in Indiana. Indiana, the polluters came and they're used to grabbing African Americans and saying these people are going to pay more. 
if these eco-green people win. And in Indiana, the NAACP said, no, thank you, and stood with solar, beat the polluters, and now in Indiana, you got solar taken off. So it's very important that you understand as business folk, you're, you have to win over consumers, that's true. You may have to edge out some of your competitors here in the room, that's awkward. <laughs> but you also have to live in a world where there's policy and politics. And the more people you include on the front end, the more people will be there for you on the back end. So Tom, you've uh, started off in the California political scene, but increasingly have become a national figure uh, in, in politics, progressive politics, and with a lot of focus on these kinds of issues. What have you learned in California that, uh, about how to build these coalitions and make them work uh, that, that applies nationally? And what's that, where do you want the business community to play? Well, let me just address the question about the business community, because when we talk about energy and climate, it's an inherently economic question. And in the United States of America, you don't get to make huge economic changes without a minimum of the permission of the business community, but really the advocacy of the business community. So in 2010, when we were doing No on 23, we felt it was absolutely incumbent that we have spokespeople from major companies talking about why this would work for them. And when we look around the United States, the impact of business leaders on politics and policy is, is as high as it's ever been in my lifetime, for sure. <coughs> so when we think about a change that's gonna impact everybody economically, we think it's really appropriate that the conversation be broad-based. We think it's appropriate that Americans be engaged, and we think it's absolutely essential that the people have, who have the most knowledge and the most credibility about jobs and job creation and new businesses be at the table and also be speaking. So that means business people. It also means labor. The fact of the matter is we think that it is important for Americans to understand why this is a great opportunity. And the spokespeople have to have credibility on that part of the issue. So, you know, there's no question that what we did in California which was to engage the business community in 2010, is now nationwide. If you really look at the Fortune 100 companies, with the exception of fossil fuel companies, they're basically with us. You know, when I went to Louisville, Kentucky last year, so that's a deep red state, I mean, the, one of the two big coal states, and I talked to CEOs, and basically they said, shut up, we know what you think, we agree with you, tell us how we can help, in Louisville, Kentucky. That's our experience of major corporations around the United States. They are with us. And the question is how to bring what you'd think of as the traditional voices of conservatism, like business leaders, <coughs> like religious faith leaders, like the Pope, who's an incredible spokesperson on this, and like military leaders, where national security leaders are all over this issue on our side. The question is how to make sure their voices are heard throughout the country because we really need the whole country to get behind One us. of the big challenges in all this, I, th I think, from the corporate side is that uh, in prioritizing social equity as, uh, as a business 
opportunity or certainly a business imperative is that that whole world has traditionally been marginalized over in CSR, corporate social responsibility, not seen as core. And I, I think you're talking about it, both of you, in a sort of a new way that reframes this, I think, as more core than just sort of doing well by doing good. Van, how do, how do you articulate that to, to companies? Well, it's about market share. Um, what do you mean? Well, for instance, there's a lot of stuff that happens with just to take solar, for instance. It's stuff that doesn't make any sense. If you're just a normal person, you look at it. Where do rich folks live in general? In the hills. Where do poor folk live in general? In the flatlands. Where it's hot. <laughs> where the sun is beaming down. <laughs> now, where do the solar panels go up? On rich folks' homes in the shady hills. They're not going up in the flatlands where you have a lot of poor folks. You have poor folks with, with black tar roofs. The roofs make the house hot. They gotta crank up the AC. That mess, makes the environment worse. If you were just rational, you'd say every one of those poor folks' houses could be a little mini power plant. Uh, but you'd have to be able to collaborate to figure out the financing and other things. I think you want while solar panels are now half as cheap as they were half an hour ago, <laughs> you might want to figure out a way to spread them out. Now, whoever comes to a mayor with that idea is going to get all kind of help. Whoever goes to a state legislator with that kind of idea is going to get all kind of help. Uh, you'll get some opposition from utility companies. But my point is that when you're thinking about the next step, you've got to include more people because you're going to want to have uh, workers that look more like the country because they're going to find those opportunities with uh, uh, African-American faith organizations, uh, Latino social organizations. There are a lot of places that uh, the African-American community spends about a trillion dollars a year. I mean, it's like we individually we're poor, but together we got a lot of money. There, is, uh, there are opportunities to increase market share, I think you get a better company, a stronger company, you get a, a better mix of products and services, but you also get more political cover. I just want to say one thing. If you ask the average environmentalist who is the core voter for the environment, they always give you the wrong answer. They always imagine it's a, a white female soccer mom in a Prius with a yoga mat on the back seat, right? That's the image of the environmental voter. But what you forget is that it's actually what the core vote for the environment is the black vote. African Americans vote overwhelmingly for a political party that is more likely to defend the environment than the other party. You can't elect Democrats. You certainly can't win. It's, not, it's, not, it's a nonpartisan thing. It's just math. You can't elect Democrats, if you want to do that, without massive black vote. In fact, for a Democrat to win the presidency, he or she has to get 92% of the black vote. Not 50%, not 70%, 92% of the black vote. So if you imagine that having a Democratic president might be good for your business, 92%, almost unanimous black vote is required, which means the Sierra Club should run over the NAACP trying to get in court to defend the black vote. You don't see that. So 
what I'm saying is that sometimes we just have these assumptions and presumptions that get in the way of basic math. Uh, I think that's, that's the, 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 the argument I would make is that your best friends, the Congressional Black Caucus, I'll end with this, the Congressional Black Caucus, the, the black Congress people, voted 100% for cap and trade, except for Archer Davis, who became a Republican next year. 100%. That shows you the appetite in the black community for these kind of solutions. If we had more cooperation, we could get more customers for you, better loss for everybody, and we'd be in a much better position to win. Tom, how are you expanding that coalition? Well, on a nationwide basis, I would break it down into California for us and the rest of the nation. So let me answer both questions. In the rest of the nation, for us to get action out of Congress, we not only need to get the traditional Democratic coalition, we actually need Republicans too. There's, you can look at the math on Congress, either house, and for us to actually get legislation without Republicans is, I guess it's possible, but it's extremely unlikely unless there's some kind of huge wave election in 2016. Mm -hmm. So we have spent a lot of time trying to appeal to people in 2015 on solutions, that the solutions are here. As you guys know, the costs have come down dramatically. We have an ability to make a change. It's economically feasible. It's economically attractive. Let's talk about which solutions are the most effective. That's all we're interested in. We're, we're done talking about anything else. Bring us your plan to get us clean energy by 2030. That's where we are. And what we've seen nationally over the last six months is that Democrats are overwhelmingly with us, and Republicans have moved 12% in the last six months. Mm. So we have almost 60% of Republicans with us at this point, and it's moved so far so fast that people are questioning the methodology of the polls, but all the polls come out at the same place. So the fact of the matter is, we feel like in order to win nationally, we have to be appealing across the aisle, which we are. At this point, it isn't a question so much of convincing people, it's of convincing people it's important. Mm. Because the thing that elected officials or people running for office respond to is not your opinion. It's whether you'll vote on your opinion. So if it's your key value, your key issue, that's important. Because if they're wrong, you lose their vote. If it's your 10th issue, you can think what 100% of the people can, be, can agree on something, but it doesn't matter because no votes will change. And if no votes change, an elected official can safely ignore it and do whatever he or she wants to do or whatever pressures. So nationwide, we are pushing solutions, urgency across the aisle. In California, we're in a different place. This is a progressive state. It's a blue state. We just, when you think back to what has happened so far in 2015, SB, 50, SB 350, a lot of people thought we got two-thirds of a loaf. If you'd said three years ago we got 50% improvement in building standards and 50% renewable portfolio standard by 2030, people would have thought, home run. In California, where we're going in terms of energy and climate and what it means in terms of the venture capital money here, the numbers of jobs created is really kind of leading the world. Mm. So from our point of view here, the big obstacles are to make sure that we actually do it in the right way. That we do it in the way that Van said where 
as George Shultz says, if you want me in on the landing, invite me in on the takeoff. The people in the coalition have to be in on the takeoff. They have to be in there on day one. We shouldn't be doing anything where we're not talking to them on day one, where they're making decisions, figuring out how to shape things. So in California, our task is not to do it because we're going to do this and I truly believe we will lead the world. We have to do it right. We have to do it right and do it in a way that responds to the other critical issues in our state and use it as a way to solve them. And if we do that, we'll win on our issue, we'll create incredible companies, we'll export all kinds of technology in the way we have in other industries, and we'll also be dealing with the very difficult and you know, unbelievably important social equity issues that are at the heart of our democracy. Well, speaking of difficult, important social equity issues, Van talks a lot about rich people and poor people. And I know you do that for effect. Um, but I want to ask you, Tom, and then I'm going to hear from you, Van. To me, that doesn't necessarily feel like coalition building. That feels a little divisive. How do you think about that? Is that about that, you know, the, the rich and poor conversation in talking about something that is about, social, about equity and about creating a bigger tent? So if you look at what's happened to incomes since 1990 in the United States, really even you go back to somewhere in the 70s, traditionally American productivity and American wages were like that. Wherever productivity went, wages went. And it was very straightforwardly connected, very directly connected, and pretty darn effective. So you could say that in America, a rising tide lifted all boats. Starting somewhere in the 70s, that's, they were disconnected, completely disconnected. So as productivity continued to rise, wages were unaffected. If you look since 1990, wages for most Americans have gone down. That's 25 years of dropping real wages. If you look since 2008, since the recession, the, the numbers are crazy. The, you know, I've seen numbers where the top 1% got over 100% so, of the wage gains. So when you think about talking about this, I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat it. There's just, it's not divisive, it's the truth. So when we think about ourselves as a society, I don't think there's anybody who, doesn't think, who thinks that's okay. I mean, in a democracy, that doesn't really work. So I think it's really important as a society. I don't think anyone set out to make this happen. But as a society, I think it's really important that we address this and we use, in, in, when we think about things, we understand that the people who are not benefiting from the, gr the gains that we're making, from the technologies we're creating, from the growth that we're having, are full members of society. And I think, you guys, one of the things that I've done, I went down to the Central Valley to spend a day with some people who are picking tomatoes, and I promise you they are working their ass off. Yeah. And I promise you that those are people who are contributing to society in a way that's a little shocking to see. Mm. And, they're having, and, and the deal they're getting back from society is not one that anyone in this room <coughs> is really actively seeking. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think it's divisive. I think the fact of the matter is, You know, it really speaks to who we are as Americans, for me. Dan? Look, look I, I, well said. I don't, uh, I, I think we're, we're way, well past the point uh, where 
any serious people want to sugarcoat stuff. Uh, I think we're at, we're at a place now where, I mean, you can turn on television, you can see the country coming apart. I was on the ground in Ferguson for CNN. I was on the ground in Baltimore for CNN. I was on the ground in Charleston for CNN. Uh, you can see, I mean, you don't have to, to be, uh, you just have to be a reasonably sensitive third grader to see. This, I mean, so I don't think it's divisive to talk about. I think, I think, I think the, device, the, the divisions are happening. Uh, we're trying to figure out how to solve it. There are some really great opportunities that are going to be in front of us very, very soon. Um, you know, President Obama, through the uh, EPA, has put out these, uh, these rules, the so-called clean power plan. It's basically the EPA telling the big utility companies they have to pollute less. That's a huge opportunity because all 50 states, to your point, how do you go from California to the other 49 states? All 49 states have to sit down and come up with a plan. That plan can include everybody or it can include a very small number of people. Uh, that's a tremendous exercise in democracy for the first time across the country to sit down and talk about when you push down on pollution, how do you push up on solutions? Who but gets to benefit? Isn't there something in the Clean Power Plan that re specifically requires them yes. to engage disadvantaged communities? Exactly, and, and for the first time, disadvantaged communities have to be at the table, according to the EPA, to have this discussion. So whatever state you're in, if you're, th if you're especially in the clean energy space, there's gonna be, there will be rules in your state that are being written uh, that you can be a part of, and when you're there, you can make sure others are, are a part of it as well. I think that's important. Um, another thing I think is important is that uh, the White House just put forward uh, a new set of rules to try to help the solar industry get into low-income communities. I'm a part of a group called Green For All. That's not divisive, it's Green For All. Not, so, <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and we're working with the White House and with, with companies to try to get more solar into more communities. The more people who benefit, uh, you hit a tipping point and eventually it just becomes common sense and that's really what we're pushing for. Yeah. Uh, so what is, what are the implications of having disadvantaged communities at the table? What, what, what do you think different is going to happen as a result of that? And, and how should the private sector be thinking about maybe a little bit differently in, in terms of how they engage with their states? Well, why don't you talk to the first part of that, Van, and then Tom the second? Good, good. Well, I mean, listen, I, you know, I, I'm a part of an organization called the Dream Corps. Our whole mission is, is jobs, not jails. And we're working with communities that are underinvested in, over-incarcerated. And we're working with Democrats and Republicans, to, to, to your point on that. To, you to partnered with Newt Gingrich. Partnered with Newt Gingrich. Actually, um, uh, on this issue, I'm even working with Coke Industries, uh, which is, a, you know, people are like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, um, and that's a great, the great thing about democracy is uh, we, don't all, we don't have to agree on everything. Uh, dictatorship, you got to agree on everything. Democracy... Uh, you can say, listen, I'm, we're, we're fighting you, Coke, on the Keystone, but on criminal justice, some of these other issues, we can find ways to work together. Newt Gingrich the same way. I point that out because for communities that are really suffering, criminal justice, economic justice, environmental justice, it's just justice. We just need jobs, not jails, for our young people. And you, we have a tremendous amount... Um, we just have a tremendous amount of wasted genius. The heartbreak that I have is seeing just genius young people uh, who if they had just a, one mentor, 
I mean, forget a, a school that works. That's just too much to ask for in America, apparently. Just one mentor, just one internship opportunity. They're, not only would their lives be better, the companies that they touch and the people there would just have a completely different understanding of the opportunities in the country. Uh, and so for me, that's my great passion. I think any company that chooses to engage, Native American community right now, 25% apparently of the renewable energy available in the country is on tribal lands. We never even talk about our Native American sisters and brothers and their great opportunity. When I was in the White House, uh, you could, because of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Bureau of Land Management, on this side of a line, you would have wind farms going up. And over here, on the tribal lands, you wouldn't because there was too much red tape and nobody was helping. So you have all of these pockets of wealth and genius and opportunity that America is not yet a diverse country. We're bubbles that touch. We're bubbles that touch. If p any company that reaches across that membrane is going to find tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Tom, I, you spoke at the, uh, were interviewed at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and uh, I think it was Ron Brownstein from the LA Times uh, asked you, um, David Koch happened to be in the audience, and he asked you, what would you say to him? And, and, and I love what you, your answer, which you, you said, uh, he was sitting in the front row right in front of you, you said, we don't have to agree on the solutions, we only have to agree that there's a problem. And so we've got an audience here of uh, both in this room and online of some thousands of people who, who agree on the problem. What's your wish for them about the way that they would engage in solutions? Is it a policy thing? Is it a technology thing? Is it money? What's the, if you could just say, I want you to do this one thing, what do you want? Well, you know, my dream in terms of energy and climate, since I think this is our generational challenge, I, my dream is this for everyone to decide that we will, regardless of party, regardless of geography, regardless of income level or ethnicity, we will decide to solve it together. That's my dream. And so what, I'm, what I would like people to do is to participate clearly politically and to let people know that this is really important. They need, they need to, elected officials need to know you will vote on this. But more than that, I view this as this huge national opportunity to redefine who we are, which means breaking down the kind of barriers and divisions between us that I think are so negative. So the partisanship, this is not something that will not affect everyone in the United States and the world. This is, this is a problem that we should be addressing together. So I think it's really important for business people to be speaking out as business people saying we can do this, the costs are at a place where we can do it, the technology is at a place where we can do it, and it will only get better. But more than that, I really think it is absolutely essential for us to see this in the, the broader context of who we want to be as a country and what kind of future we, we want to have. In terms of sustainability, definitely, I think that's part of who we want to be and who we absolutely have to become. But I think more than this, it's really going back to what I would think of as the absolutely traditional American democratic values. And you know, that to me is, if we will solve it, we will not solve it without getting down to that base level, and, you know, which I think will be 
you know, obviously it's a challenge. I think it would be a source of great pride for all of us in this room if, in fact, we do create the technology, we do push politically, and we do, in fact, solve this problem together for ourselves, for our country and the world. We will think back and say, that is the most important thing we ever do. Dan, uh, give you the last word. Just you've got some of the world's biggest companies, some of the world's most innovative companies, and sometimes it's their one and the same, in this room and watching. What's your wish? Well, I mean, I, I think we, we've spoken to it quite well. And I, I think that the, you know, those of us who've kind of been through the climate wars, the carbon wars, have come to a, a real place of, I think, I mean, I, I love hearing uh, your, 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 your words. I mean, there's a wisdom uh, and a prayer in your heart that I think is very profound. Uh, it really is. I mean, it's just, you don't, you don't hear that enough, uh, frankly, um, from, from national and global leaders. And um, listen, I, uh, at Green for All, I just say this, at Green for All, you know, our hands are open. Uh, I, I've gone to too many funerals uh, in Oakland alone uh, with young people in caskets and gray-haired people sitting up in the pews, which is the opposite of what it's supposed to be. And I know for sure that there, that there is great, great talent and opportunity in communities that would love to make your company successful in ways you can't even imagine. Um, and so if, 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 you are, if you are trying to find a way to build a great company that is a beloved company that can compete both for market share and also in the, the space of hearts and minds, I'd love to be able to work with any of you guys. We know where the talent is. They just need a shot. Well, May. Your, both of your prayers be heard loud and clear, uh, and thank you so much for sharing them. And, and we should thank this character. Now listen, uh, <laughs> I've known this guy for almost 13, I tried to figure out, about 13 years. And I remember having the conversation about the need to get this grouping of people together. And it was just, lit, I mean, it was like a scribble on your napkin. I mean, it was not this. I mean, this was a, a prayer in his heart and a dream for him. And the fact, and I was just talking about this backstage, the fact that you're all together here and that you can solve some problems together, you can have some co-opetition, but you can raise the whole field, means that people like me have a lot more hope and opportunity when we go out in our, in our worlds and say, listen, there's something happening. And so this green, green wave is rising. We hope the green wave lifts all boats. But you got, a, I think, a huge, huge round of applause owed to this guy. Thank you for your work. Man. Thank you, Van Jones, Tom Steyer. You've been listening to Van Jones and Tom Steyer in conversation at the Verge 15 conference. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash centerstage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.